Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, April 10th, and this is the weekly market update. The typical disclaimer, this is anything you hear on this video or podcast is not investment advice. Do your own due diligence. It's your money. It's your responsibility. So in this week's reality check, uh, this is a from an article in the Hill magazine, or well, website. And it's talking about energy transitions and talking about the bans of natural gas used for heating and cooking in certain California cities or other cities around the United States. I think there's in the article, which I'll put a link to in the show notes, it talks about maybe 12 or 15 cities that are moving in this direction. Berkeley is one of the main cities. And this uh, professor of uh, engineering from University of Houston, this is an editorial he wrote. And I thought it was funny what, looking in the comment section. It's like everybody immediately goes and attacks the, um, the guy. Again, when we're talking about energy, it's a very politicized subject. It's almost like religion or politics now, right? And because when you inevitably start talking about energy, you start having this bifurcated conversation between fossil fuel provided energy and renewables or the energy transition, whatever. So obviously most people on the progressive left or people with a liberal persuasion or upper middle-class people, stuff white people like type people, suburban people, Karen, soccer moms, you know, they, they believe in this big energy transition that's going to happen, you know, in a year or two, and it's going to be unicorns and, and uh, ice cream cones and puppy dogs. Um, the reality is, is that energy transitions take decades, and they cost a lot more money, and they take a lot longer than people think. The other side, obviously, is the people that are advocates for fossil fuels or advocates for cheaper energy, reliable energy, and uh, they're at odds. And what the adult needs to think about is that everything in life has pros and cons. Uh, every decision has upsides and downsides. There's trade-offs in everything that we do. Um, if you want to have a let's be realistic here. If you want to get to this zero carbon thing or, or, or reduce all this carbon, whatever that means, but let's just say reducing CO2 is what they mean. Then I have this, I have the solution. You have to get rid of the sub suburbs. Okay. Everybody needs to move into dense living areas, smaller living areas that use more, less energy that are better insulated, more energy efficient. And, uh, get rid of their cars, get rid of their conveniences, and, you know, live and work in dense urban areas. And um, that's not what we've chosen to do, at least in the United States. We have these huge sur suburbs. We have people living in, you know, a couple or one person or three people or whatever, small families living in these huge houses, 2,800, 3,400, 5,000 square feet houses. And I don't begrudge them. I mean, if they have the economic ability to do that, they should be able to do whatever they want. But you're not, you're not going to support that vision of this suburban lifestyle, this energy-intensive lifestyle with an energy transition that cuts out fossil fuels in any near-term time frame.
That's just reality. That's just math and, and BTUs. That's just all that is. And so when you start talking about these things, it's very politicized and immediately people go to the politics. No one wants to look at the math. No one really understands power generation that's really talking about these things. People don't work in the plants. They're not engineers. They're, they, they're not, you know, they don't know where energy comes from. They just have this fantastical version, uh, almost cartoonish and childlike about how easy and, and, and they just can't understand why, why aren't we doing this? It's so easy. It must be because people just don't want to do it because they're greedy and they're evil. And, but this provides the opportunity for us, right? I mean, um, it's kind of funny. I was reading an article about the former governor of Michigan, General Jennifer Grantham, who's the current secretary of energy now, and just some of the boondoggles that she was involved with during the, uh, when Obama was in office and some of the green energy initiatives, hundreds of millions of dollars that was grifted off and bankrupt companies and stolen. It's just, you know, here we go again. So um, in my view, the preference would always be to have a market uh, dictate these things, but I know most people don't trust the market. <laughs> They're scared of it. That for some reason, it's kind of like that Mil Milton Friedman um, clip which I'll put a link to in the show notes. It's funny who's on the Donahue show and he was talking about freedom of choice and market economies and things like that. And um, he kind of interrupted Phil Donahue because Phil Donahue was, you know, he's the true blue progressive, one of the original progressives, you know, he was all for, you know, if there's a problem, government can solve it type guy. And Milton Friedman told him, you know, who are these angels in government that you're going to have do all these things that, that have all of their, you know, best interests of everybody. He said, he told Phil Donahue, I said, I don't even trust you to do that. And it was just kind of a funny quip, but I'll, I'll put the link to it. But it's exactly right. I mean, so the people that are in power, these people that are picked to be these secretaries of energy, these bureaucrats, are they picked on their ability to be their expertise or are they picked on their political clout or their connections? What is Jennifer Grantham? If you go look at her Wikipedia page, she didn't work in the energy industry. She doesn't know anything about it. She's connected. She was on some boards. So what? That's because she's, you know, a political hack. And it's both sides, guys. It's not picking up. It's just the current administration. So anyways, let's get back to this because I thought it was interesting. It says uh, energy transition. California's natural gas home ban won't reduce gas demand now. The reality of the energy transition is that it will take longer, be bumpy, and cost more than the aspirations. That's what we've been saying. The reality to the naysayers is that it's happening and that governments are more determined than ever to put their countries on, as Biden calls it, an irreversible path. The other reality for both sides is that getting rid of fossil fuels will take longer than expected. That's obvious if you know anything about this. So it goes on to say, you know, this Hill piece, it's called banning natural gas in homes will increase the consumption of gas. So let's get down here to the quote from the art to the article. Heating homes with natural gas is straightforward and efficient. The gas is piped into the house and then burned in a furnace with efficiency exceeding 90% in modern models. Talking about modern furnaces, that's correct. It's clean burning. It, uh, you're piping the gas in. The energy is being, most of the energy is being extracted from the gas when it's burned in the home, in the furnace. However, that use, as all fossil fuels, produces carbon dioxide emissions. An electric heater can be just as efficient and produces no emissions. But here's the caveat. Here's, again, where the choices come in. And the 
ups and downs. But what about the electricity used to run it? When natural gas is being burned in a power plant, only about 45% of the energy contained in the gas will be converted into electricity. That's exactly right. Why is that? They don't have time to explain this, but why is that? You need to understand why. Because when you combust in a natural gas plant, you are doing that in its most likely into a gas turbine. A gas turbine is basically a jet engine on a concrete skid. Okay, it sits there, it's connected to a generator. The gas is burnt in the, in the gas turbine. The heat from the gas turbine, you turn the generator, it produces electricity. The ga hot gas from the, um, uh, from the turbine goes into what's called a HERSI, which is a heat recovery steam generator. It goes across boiler tubes where you have circulating water that's heated up with the exhaust gas that creates steam in a steam drum that goes to a steam turbine generator, which produces electricity. Now you have all kinds of losses here. You have friction losses from the turning of the machinery. You have heat losses. You, when you're, you're, you're converting from natural gas to heat energy, then back to uh, mechanical energy and then electrical energy, there's losses all across that. Then you have the transmission of the electricity to the home. You have losses in every stage of that process and they're cumulative. So that's what they're talking about. As that electricity is transported and distri distributed, additional six to 10% is lost and the amount of electrical energy delivered to a house is typically just one third of the energy contained in the natural gas fuel. Consequently, the overall efficiency of a gas heater is almost three times as high than all of its ele all electric counterpart. So this is an opinion piece. It's like, I don't know, it's not even a thousand words. And so right off in the bat, all the naysayers get on there in the comments you know well basically want you to show the math and all this stuff and they talk start talking about all these things about heat all this stuff that has nothing to do with what the argument is straw mans and stuff like that and that's what we've degenerated into but this is good for our purpose because it's actionable right um the way california goes the rest of the nation goes and um that's where we're heading there. This infrastructure program uh, deal, it's going to be a bunch of sops to all these democratic uh, supporters and what we saw during the Biden administration or the Obama administration. So, you know, that's what we're going to see. And I guess what, I, what I'm trying to, the point I'm trying to make here is, is that, you know, you, you can't make logical arguments about this. Energy is politicized, just like a lot of other things. And whoever has the most, the, the political power at the time is going to dictate the energy policies. It's just that simple. You know, like I said, downsizing, increasing nuclear power, things like that, that will actually do something longer term are not even being conceived. They're not even being talked about. No one's going to come out. If you want to get rid of fossil fuels or reduce their use, put a $50 a barrel tax on oil. Price of gasoline would go to eight to $10 a, a gallon and consumption of gasoline would drop drastically, just like with cigarettes. They want to lower smoking. They keep raising the tax on cigarettes. Now people still smoke, but the, 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 you know, the education around the health issues plus the, the increased cost is creating uh, disincentives for people to do that. Incentives matter, uh, but they won't do that. If you, if you suggested that you wouldn't get elected. 
So we're getting back into that emotional thing. You can stand outside of the grocery store and ask a thousand soccer moms that come out, are they for, oh yes, I'm for green energy. Well, what about if we put a $50 a barrel tax on, on, on oil, that would make your gas price about $10 at the pump. That will reduce gas consumption. That will have a big effect. We'll go full nuclear. No, 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 we don't want to do that. Or we'll go full renewables like everybody wants and your electricity costs will go up you know, three to four times like in Germany. Well, I'm not for that now. See, so you can't have, you can't, it's cognitive distance, right? You're trying to hose, hold two opposing ideas in your head at the same time. So reality is reality, whether you like it or not. And that's just how it is. So, you know, if you're on the other t side of the spectrum of the political argument, you're going to think that you're right. And you're going to think that the other person's wrong. So this is just, but in the end, uh, like I've said before, uh, price and cost will out and it'll eventually dictate because um, it's the United States and Europe, if they pursue what they're pursuing, high cost energy, but that's not as reliable. And our economic competitors are not pursuing that. We will put ourselves at an economic disadvantage, which we can't really afford to do. And we continue to put self-imposed barriers on our economic selves and our economic abilities, then we will lose in the competition worldwide. It's just that simple. So talking about electrification, I just want to, I like these articles when they come up, I like to keep po pointing this out. Um, you know, talking about the electrification of transportation, electrification of everything. So this is an article talking about, we're gonna need a lot more copper. And the problem is we're not finding a lot more copper. And I'm gonna get into another discussion here in a minute of why other countries that are forward looking and aren't tied to a four and two year political cycle like the US actually have had plans in place for a couple decades to ensure the flow of commodities to their countries to support their economies. So compared to the high import dependencies for key EV battery minerals, 92, 159, and 100% for lithium, cobalt, nickel, and graphite, respectively, copper's 35% net import reliance appears low. However, EVs require four times as much copper as conventional vehicles, and demand will only grow as countries mobilize to electrify their vehicle fleets, let alone the rising need for copper wiring and grid stabilization infrastructure, EV charging stations, and wind turbines. Total copper demand for the EV sector is projected to rise from less than 500,000 tons today to nearly 1.5 million tons in 2025. That's just four years from now, a tripling. And to 3.3 million tons in 2030, which is only nine years. So what's interesting here is, is that I don't know how they're going to square this environmental movement and things like that with this need for this ramping up of all of these materials um, as the idea that we're just going to go to third world countries and exploit them and dig the stuff up there and bring it here or are we going to be allowed to mine here in the united states we have tremendous resources here but will we be allowed to mine them this is another question i would suggest to you that the answer will be no there will be barriers and roadblocks put up to do these things Yet the people that are putting the barriers and roadblocks up are the ones that want the transition to happen the most. Again, cognitive distance, ice cream, unicorns, and puppy dogs, not reality. Reality is what it is. There's going to be pros and cons to every decision that's made, especially around energy. And so uh, that will further constrict the supply just as everyone else around the world is trying to do the same thing we're trying to do. 
And that's why you already see copper at four over $4 a pound. And it's probably going a lot higher. How high could it go? I don't know. Could it go to eight to $10 a pound? Very possible. Just like just about every other material, insufficient investment has been made in new copper mines and finding more copper. In the, in the mines that are being found, in, a, in many cases, the head grades or the, the amount of copper in each ton of ore is less and less. All the easy fruit's been picked. So we're having to go into areas that have less con concentrated uh, supplies of copper. It's not, you know, we live on a dirt ball. I mean, there's only so much of everything here. And so that will necessarily, that doesn't mean we're going to run out. At some price, you'll be able to extract, but it probably won't be where it is now, $4. And so this presents more opportunity for people that understand what's happening. Now, this is what I wanted to talk about. This is a chart, and it has all the countries along here. If you notice over here, it talk, shows basically by region. This is debt owed to China by each of these countries. And you'll see all these like yellow are basically sub-Saharan Africa. The Chinese have been in sub-Saharan Africa for decades. They have inculcated themselves there. They have built infrastructure. They have partnered with various governments. Why are they doing this? Well, I'll tell you why. Because Africa is one of the last frontiers of underexplored areas in the world for mineral wealth. And so they understood a long time ago that with a, you know, their population and what they needed to do to industrialize and urbanize requires resources that they don't particularly have in China. And so they determined that they would go there and uh, do whatever was necessary, bribe, become friends with, build things, whatever, give loans, whatever, diplomatically, and then, you know, send Chinese uh, experts there. I mean, you go, I have friends that work, are from Africa, have worked in Africa. They said the Chinese are everywhere. They're literally everywhere. And so they get you on the hook with these projects and then you can't pay. Well, why don't we do this concession, mineral concession? Why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? Um, standards are not as high as they are like in the West or in Europe. And the Chinese, quite frankly, don't care about human rights. They don't care about environmental protections. They don't care about workers' rights. They don't care. They care about China and Chinese people. That's what they care about. I'm not making a moral judgment. I'm just telling you that's how, how they think. They could care less about the rest of this stuff. Do they pay lip service on the world stage? Absolutely. But like I said, watch what they do, not what they say. Why am I bringing this up? Because they think long-term. They're not bound by a four and two-year electoral cycle. We don't do long-term planning here in the United States. Okay, there's no long-term planning because everything is tied to these election cycles and this democracy, the lowest common denominator. I bet you, even the people that are listening to this, you probably can't even name 10 African countries, much less find the ones that you named on a map. It's, nobody cares about the place, but the Chinese are there in force and locking things down. Does it matter this year? No. Does it matter in 10 years? Yes. You know, when 70% of the world's cobalt comes from the DRC, I mean, do you know any American mining firms? Was American government active there? But the Chinese are active there. I mean, this is the point I'm trying to make. This, this is the kind of things that you need to look at as a resource investor. You know, some of the things that need to be considered in the worldview when you're you know, putting money to work.
And will there be sufficient supply for everybody? Will the Chinese be willing to sh share the wealth, if you will? I don't think, you know, if it comes down to China going without and they have control of the resources, they're not going to go without. So you just don't see, you know, we're so tied up in our little world thing here in our home country bias and our little, you know, North American continent, continent here. You know, and what are we really doing around the world? You know, we're messing around in Afghanistan and Syria, these places. And, you know, the meantime, the Chinese diplomatically. And now, I mean, I know like in South, I mean, I think in Sudan, they had oil concessions. They sent Chinese troops there. They're not going to have Al-Qaeda attacking their oil infrastructure. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> it's not going to happen. And, you know, you can watch videos. I, I think there was a show on, there was a show on Discovery Channel. Or maybe it was Discovery, one of those and remember when the gold mining shows were popular a couple of years ago? Well, they had the, the one with those guys in Alaska, but they had another one with these two dinks that were over in Ghana in West Africa, which is a very prolific gold production country. And these idiots somehow got a gold concession from the government. I don't know. And so they were running back and forth between the states and Ghana. There were just a couple of doofuses that really didn't know what they were doing they showed up at their concession and there's a couple of excavators working on their concession and they were chinese operators and so they were like hey what's going on here and so the, the ghana guys who were working the equipment were like hey we just work here uh, talk to the boss so the chinese bosses came shorts rubber boots up to their knees and a couple of shotguns and ran the guys off whose concession it was and that's how it is I mean, that's just one vignette. I mean, but uh, from what I understand, that's basically how they roll there. And uh, what are you going to do? You're going to take them to court? So it's interesting because I believe that the Chinese think long-term. They have the benefit, at least when it comes to these things, of not having to deal with democracy um, and the political cycle because they have the PRC um, or the Communist uh, Chinese Communist Party basically runs everything. And, you know, what they decide in their five-year plans and their dictates is what happens. And there's no, you know, that's just how it is. So I think this needs, something needs to be watched because there's going to be a, there's already going to be a scramble for these resources as we get further along. And as I've pointed out before, People are not doing the math on this energy transition of what's going to be required material-wise. It's far exceeding what's necessarily currently available. That doesn't mean we won't find more materials. We will, but it will take a tremendous amount of investment and time. And that duration, that time gap, that investment gap can lead to tremendous uh, upside in my view. It's another thing that we need to keep an eye on. You'll notice just this year, how food prices are spiking. Uh, global food costs, this is a Bloomberg article, I'll put a link to it. Global food costs are the highest since 2014. The people that I listen to, um, people that I follow that uh, do agricultural uh, commodity um, hedging and weather forecasting and things like that. I mean, people aren't paying attention to like the floods that happened in China last year. People aren't paying attention to the fact that we have been spoiled by almost a decade of above average crop growing conditions. And now as everything on this planet, it's cyclical. And the chances are that we are now gonna be moving into a time frame or a period of time when growing conditions won't necessarily be optimum. And that will lead to possibly 
crop failures in various areas around the world. Maybe not all in the same place, but you know, if you had these big crop failures in China last year because of the floods, remember when they thought that the the um, the big dam, the Three Gorges Dam, might collapse and wipe out like half of central China, and the tremendous amount of record rains they had that wiped out a lot of the grain crops. Well, that, what do you think the Chinese have been doing? Somebody put a a a picture of shipping bulk carriers. Basically, it's like a single stream of green, showed a green dot for every ship it was a single straight line, or not a straight line, but a line going from Brazil all the way around Africa and into China with all the soybeans that they were uh, exporting to China. You know, if you take into account the swine flu they had when it wiped out their swine herd, just to rebuild those herds now takes a tremendous amount of grains. So you know, it comes back again, you know, if we're going to be in a situation where the population continues to grow by about 80 million people a year, the amount of arable, arable growing or cap acres capable of growing food is going down per capita, then you almost need optimum growing conditions every year. And people know my view. My view is that, uh, you know, I think the biggest FU in the history of the world is getting ready to happen over the next 10 or 20 years as we don't see necessarily global warming, but we see more of a cooling effect on the earth. And if we see that and growing seasons are shortened in any way, or we have more volatile weather, which is what we're seeing uh, in some areas around the world, and it will rotate, um, you know, you could see where optimum growing conditions go to suboptimal, and then is there gonna be enough food to feed everybody? Plus you add on the, the issue of all the monetary expansion that's being coordinated around the world where just about every central bank and government has went nuts printing money and that doesn't help the situation you will recall that approximately 10 years ago when they had the arab spring if you will this was touched off by high food prices not a desire for democracy in tunisia or egypt because people couldn't afford to eat and i can guarantee you if food prices get higher in some of these places, they, it's going to cause a lot of political turmoil. And we can't really even forecast what the possible repercussions would be. You know, right now, a lot of people are in the media are just saying, well, this is COVID related. No, it's not just COVID supply related. It also has to do with, you know, crop failures and other things that are happening around the world. I mean, so how do you take advantage of this? Well, if you have this view, I mean, fertilizer producers, and I think oil is a beneficiary because oil seems to track these things. If you layer a, go to stock charts and layer over, you know, the performance of the grains with the fertilizer stocks, they pretty much march hand in hand. So that would be one way to take advantage of it. So it's something to keep an eye on. This is like, you know, this, this may be transitory as the Fed says, but it may not be. This is Alex Epstein. He wrote a book called The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. I've mentioned it before. You may want to read it. Um, I don't know if I have it in my list of recommended books. I think I do. If not, I'll add it. But it's a pretty good book. And he makes a good case in there about, you know, fossil fuels, enabling civilization, enabling life, longer lifespans, all these things, things that people take for granted, he points out in that book. And uh, so I tried to get him on the show. He's a busy guy. He didn't want to really come on. Uh, I'm not that big yet, right? When we get big, though, we'll see. But um, I have listened to him on other, he's, he has his own channel and things. So I suggest you take a look at it. But I thought I've pointed this out before. Um, 
look at like India as a developing country. It's up and coming, right? It has over a billion people. And this is what the, he quotes the um, India, India's energy minister on net zero. You know, we're talking about this net carbon. And, and the quote from the minister of energy is, you have 800 million people, he's talking about 800 million people in India who don't have access to electricity. You can't say that they have to go to net zero. They have the right to develop. They want to build skyscrapers and have a higher standard of living. You can't stop that, unquote. And this is the exact point that I've been making. This, I don't, it's more cognitive dissonance. You know, I, this view that I think a lot of people have in the West, it's, I don't want to use the word that it's like, it's kind of um, elitist, you know? Well, we have to do this because the world's going to burn up. And in the meantime, they're driving around in their SUVs, living in their suburban homes, comfy, well-fed, with all the advantages that the fossil fuel use it, it gives them. And they have the ability to sit there and uh, make these moral judgments about what everybody else around the world should do. And telling these developing countries that they don't have the right to develop, I don't know, it's not probably, probably going to work, right? Because if you're the people that are in the government of India, what is your um, constituency? The bringing as many people out of poverty in India, focusing on India, or placating a bunch of Karens in the West? Or sucking up to the bureaucrats in the EU or in D.C.? Now, your, your obligation, if you want to stay in power, is to ensure that the compact between you and the Indian people about rising living standards is maintained. And the only way you're going to do that in any kind of time frame that's legit is through fossil fuels, just like the West used. I mean, I've, I pointed this out before. I mean, the same thing happened in Mongolia. They have tremendous coal reserves. Just about the whole country has to live on coal basically during the winter because they have centralized heating in the capital. I mean, it, it gets down to 40 or 50 below zero there. It's the coldest cap nation capital in the world. And they have these huge thermal plants that are coal-fired. Coal if they didn't have those, and they circulate you know, hot water and steam throughout the city. If they didn't have that, you, the country wouldn't exist. The people wouldn't be able to live. So they don't, so what's the answer? Just tell them they don't have the right to live? Well, you, you know, they, they, they wanna live. You know, people want a higher standard of living. And it's higher standards of living and economic development are intensely energy intensive. So I wanted to point out one more thing. This is, uh, I got this off ncoal.org. It's a pretty good website. I mean, there are people that are focused on getting rid of coal, obviously, but they do tremendous work. I mean, they track every plant that's running around the world, every plant that's, you know, shut down, but all the ones that are being permitted, constructed, I mean, it's like real-time information on all the coal plants around the world. And so I just went and grabbed some information here just on India. And you can, you can do your own work, but I just checkmarked here the coal plants that are under construction, which are in red. And those uh, little circles are like, like, if you look on the bottom there where that red circle is, it's like five different plants. If you go to the site and click on that little red circle where it has a five, it'll expand and show you the plants and how big they are and all this stuff and when they're going to commission. So these are all the plants that are coal plants just in India that are pre-permit announced under construction or permitted. So 
That's right. They have the right to develop and they're going to develop. So what are we going to do about this? Are we going to get to a point and CO2 emissions continue to go up, which they will, because coal usage as a percentage of the energy mix will go down over time, but overall coal use will go up because energy demand is forecast to double over the next 20 years. So let me say that again, as a percent of the energy mix, coal will go down, but overall usage of coal is going to go up because we have billions of people that have the right to develop. And in order to do that, you're not going to do that with windmills and solar. Windmills and solar are a benefit of being a wealthy society. These are not wealthy societies. They're going to go for what works, what's cheap, and what's uh, available. And that currently is coal. And I mean, and I have to give the Indians credit. They are trying to expand their nuclear fleet, but this, it takes time. And you're not going to do it with solar panels. Is solar making inroads? Yes, I invest in solar companies that, you know, do rural solar things so people can charge their phones and run their TVs. You're not going to run an electric arc furnace off a solar farm. It's just not going to happen to make steel. So these people want to have a, what you have. They have the right to do that, just like you had the right to do it. And so unless you're going to come up with some, you're going to forego your standard of living and allow them to uh, have their standard of living, then they're going to continue to do what is into their best interest. That's just human nature. And again, this provides us with opportunity because why? Coal is so marginalized, so hated, so demonized in the West. Everybody is not going to find, there's not going to be any financing. I mean, try to go out if you had a coal property right now and try to get it financed, try to get it permitted, try to get it built. No one in the West is going to give you any money. No one's going to help you. Now, I would suggest that if you went to the Chinese or Russians or the Indians, you could probably get financing. You could probably get insurance. You could probably get help in permitting if you were doing something there. So you're seeing this bifurcation. You're going to see this bifurcation going forward, and it's actionable. You know, we talked about this before that, you know, the tobacco industry was the best returning industry group for the last hundred years. And it was probably one of the most demonized. I would suggest to you that coal probably or may have that same ability over the next couple decades. It's not going away. Okay, guys, that's it for this week. Uh, just jumped around a little bit, constantly talking about energy. I mean, energy is really underpinning everything, right? Everything that we do takes energy. And just being flippant about it or approaching it from a view of a child is probably not the best course of action. We can't control what the governments do. We can't control what policymakers do. What we can do is analyze thoroughly what they're suggesting, what they're planning to do, find the areas that are not going to work, that have historically not working, and take the other side. Or in the case of copper, you know, it's again, a heads I win, tails I win more. If somebody comes to us and says, we want you to make energy policy, then we'll make energy policy, but they're not going to do that. So we have to look at things for the way they are and then look for holes in the argument and take the other side of that bet or take parts of the bet that are going to uh, manifest as a co consequence of the policies that are put in place, i.e. copper, rare earth demand, things like that. So that's what we do in actionable intelligence. Um, the newsletter, we beat the S&P last year. We're ahead, uh, the first quarter, we beat the S&P again. We're currently beating the S&P. Um, we're really feeling good about uh, what we think maybe is a 
transition away as we get into going forward into, you know, an upcycle for commodities over the next few years. And so far that's panning out. So um, if you want to take a subscription to that, it's in the show notes how to do that. If you want to come on Patreon, you can support us on Patreon. Uh, a $5 donation will get you a, I will give you a current pick from the newsletter, a one time, that's just one time. People seem to get confused. You give me, you sign on a Patreon, $5 minimum. You can cancel right after that. And I will send you a, a recent pick from the newsletter. So you can get an idea of the type of companies that we are looking at and some of the ideas that we are pursuing. All right, guys, appreciate the support. We busted 6,000 subscribers of the day on the YouTube channel. Uh, it's really, it's really continues to grow. You guys are continuing to support us. Appreciate it. And uh, I really like the comments. I mean, people are seem to be happy with the work we're doing here and making comments like, you know, we're underfollowed. We, you know, more people should listen. And I, you know, feel free to share this with other people. Um, you know, subscribe, do, do the things to help us in the algorithm. So, and hopefully we can get out to more people and get, get some of this common sense uh, themes out there. All right, guys, that's it for this week. We'll talk to you next week.